Hi, and welcome to another edition of Feeling Techish. We have our usual co-hosts. There's me, Andy Lowry. There's Lee Crosley. Hi, everyone. And Lauren Bevan. Hiya. This week, we're going to be talking about, well, I'm going to be uh, advocating a little bit of why I think they should teach stats in schools as part of the standard curriculum. I open with my first salvo, which is, you've probably all heard the line, lies, damn lies, and statistics suggesting that statistics are uh, the worst kind of lies but actually what we all really know is that statistics don't lie all the lies are in the telling not in the actual numbers themselves and usually all you need to find is the truth or at least understand which truth you're being told the reason i'm suggesting that we should be taught at school is because and i'm not suggesting we should be taught everything to do with statistics i'm not suggesting that uh, everybody should be learning how to generate data from sample sets and how to do data visualizations and all those kind of things i think that's uh, a little bit excessive but i am suggesting people should understand and be able to validate the statistics they're being shown and understand what the numbers they're actually seeing So, yeah, I'm not expecting people to know what the difference between a chi-squared distribution and a normal distribution is. I did have to look up chi-squared to make sure I understood myself. Possibly not even wanting to know what the difference between a mean, mode, and uh, uh, median average is, although it's probably a good idea. But at least understanding to the level that small sample sets, probably not very good valid data. Understanding context, so just getting a number without understanding what the larger numbers related to it are. And the little tricks that they play with graphs, in particular, fun things you can do with uh, axes of graphs that make it look like one thing when actually uh, something else is the truth when you dig into the numbers. Uh, so that's kind of my opening salvo. Lee and Lauren, what's your thoughts on this? It's interesting you said that maybe you shouldn't teach things like sample collection and data viz. Well, I actually think you should. And the reason why is because unless you do it, you don't really understand it. Counting how many people in your classroom have blue eyes, look at another classroom and you've got double the amount of data. By actually doing it and collecting it, you start to learn that maybe sample size is one of the most important things and one of the ways to skew and mislead in statistics. If you don't understand that concept, then you don't really think about it. I actually had a director once send me a bar chart and each bar just had a small bar except for one. And I said, oh, that's actually shocking. I mean, I thought it might be like that. What's the sample size? Oh, so that one's seven and all the rest are one. (laughs) It's like, "Mm, yeah, I think that we probably can't learn anything from this other than you don't understand what a sample size is. Misleading graphs. Do do you remember the, uh, was it the Times? I'm worried that we're going to get sued by the Times now. Well, they said they were hugely more popular than another newspaper, online and in print. And they showed two graphs, and one looked like it was 50% more, but actually the axis across the bottom wasn't a zero, and it was actually 10%. And, and you have to kind of read the numbers and understand it. So I think there is a little bit of education around how statistics are manipulated in the world of fake news and fake statistics and trying to mislead people. Teaching that in school is obviously a core skill, I reckon, now. I think it's apt at the moment, given there's lots of people looking at all the coronavirus vaccine result trials that have been coming out over the last week or so and come to their own conclusion or trying to understand what the risk factors are about something like that. Taking the three that have been approved at the moment. So the Pfizer and the Moderna ones have had quite big sample sizes. And there's been quite a lot of pushback with people saying, well, actually, 
this hasn't been developed for very long and therefore why should we believe it? But again, if you look at it based on the clinical trials and the sample sizes of of normal vaccines, they've actually reached that, but they've done it because they've had access to a lot more people who are willing to be vaccinated. So contextually, how you reach a critical mass of understanding whether or not your your findings are sound and that sort of sample size is, is really important. And likewise, Conversely, the GSK and Oxford one reached the same sample size, but when upon closer inspection, it looks like they've used different research protocols in therefore areas. And therefore, you probably can't generalise on it because they're comparing different things and combining them in a way which may be fine, but may also not be fine. So, again, just understanding how to get under the lid of stuff and how not to do I guess they call it science by press release and actually understand a little bit more about what's in it before drawing a conclusion, I think would be really valuable. And the one thing I think I probably learned when I started to dig into it and try to do it for myself is how much it's more of an art than a science. There are absolutes and there are right ways and wrong ways of doing things. But going to the point around how you kind of present stuff on a graph and how you show stuff to have the recommended impact, you know, that have done the numbers right. There's no kind of disputing that, but it's all to do with how it, it skews your perception and it's more kind of psychology than it is maths at that point around landing a particular message and leading people to a particular conclusion. Yeah, and I think that it's that last piece is exactly my concern. I, I don't have personally I have very few concerns that the people doing the tests and the people evaluating these vaccines, you know, I, I, I think they've probably got a better idea whether it's safe or not than I do. But as like today, I saw uh, one of my uh, friends uh, posted about the new vaccine that was approved today. And he was saying, oh, just you know, remember that the 2009 SARS vaccine caused uh, 2,000 patients to uh, have certain side effects, very serious side effects, I can't remember which ones they were. But he didn't. What he didn't do is put any context around that. If two thousand people are, have those side effects to the, the vaccine that was approved today, that you know that's undoubtedly bad. But if it saves a million people, in the scheme of things, I think the the vaccine is relatively safe. All drugs have a certain percentage of side effects. That's just how it happens when you put all kinds of chemicals in your body. But there's no context around his numbers. He said two thousand people. And again, as I say, that's bad, but compared to millions of people that may have died without it, that's a very small number. They've actually changed the protocol. So the subtext to those numbers are that it didn't go through proper clinical trials processes. It was shortcut, and that's exactly what they've avoided doing this time round. So again, it's even less likely that those things are, are likely to happen because they've taken all of those additional steps around quality assurance and understanding those sorts of things. And I think it's also in, in sampling risk. So one of the big things that we've found out recently, what well, we knew to start off with, is that most diseases present differently in men and women, but there's a real lack of sex disaggregated data to evaluate whether or not there is proportionate risk between the genders and understanding whether or not doses need to be changed and other things like that, particularly for pain medication so my undergraduate was on pain perception and actually the sort of neural pathways that that affect that and there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that that happens differently but again if the data isn't collected to be able to research it people don't know even though we know it's a confounding factor in it so again being able to critically appraise information that's being given when you know it's being given by somebody that has a vested interest in leading your thoughts in a certain way, I think it is more important now than ever. 
There are so many different dimensions as well. There are other potential side effects that aren't death, which are related to other things that aren't been measured or shown on a graph. And previously worked on the BNF and looking at drug interactions between different drugs. Even that alone is exceptionally complicated. So when you start looking at these things over the long term, we don't even know what the long term effects of COVID are without a vaccine, <laughs> never mind on certain populations with certain vaccines at certain times, given certain other parameters. So it's a very complex problem. And drawing that on a graph is, or a pie chart, which I know Lauren loves and saying, look, we had 2000 deaths. I don't think that's a good way of representing these things. Agree. And I prefer a radial graph. Florence Nightingale actually uh, invented radial graphs as part of, to show mortality in the Crimea. So she was more of a statistician than she was, well, she was a better statistician than she was as a nurse, actually, because um, all of her stats show that her outcomes weren't great. Poor Florence, sorry. But it was... That's where it, it's it's kind of come from. I think the other thing that is important and I think sometimes gets lost or people conflate it is around correlation and causation. And understanding that, I think, is a, a big kind of blind spot for some people. I was reading a study the other day that was looking this kind of myth around children watching TV versus kind of poorer behavioural outcomes. And what they hadn't controlled for was around sort of socioeconomic things for parents who couldn't afford childcare and were using the sort of TV as a bit of a surrogate. So actually it wasn't necessarily the TV that was the issue. It was all of those other sort of factors around it that were giving those children sort of poorer outcomes. And and again, I think that's something that we're too quick to draw, draw those kind of cause and effect things without thinking, well, is there a mechanism by which this thing causes that thing? You just reminded me of one of my uh, top 10 favorite XKCDs uh, on correlation versus causality. The first person says, uh, I, I used to think correlation implied causation. Then I took a statistics class and now I don't. And the second person says, well, it sounds like the class helped. The first person said, well, maybe. Do either of you two know what Simpson's paradox is? I've heard it, but... It's really difficult to explain, especially without any visuals. Let's try it anyway. Why not? We might have to clarify this with a tweet, I guess. I'm going to try and pull out an example, and then I'll try and explain what it actually is. So let's say this podcast, we're on episode five now. I go away and ask my friends what they think about each episode, in turn, every week. Lauren also goes away and asks her friends every week what they think of the episode and give us a score out of 10. So effectively, what we've got now is two sets of data, which plotted like episode one, episode two, episode three, and then a score based on how much they enjoyed it. If you took both of those two sets independently and took maybe the first three episodes of my data, you could show a line going up and saying that we're guessing better. You could also take the second half of Lauren's data, episode four and five, and show that's also positive and going up. But actually, if you group the two things together, there could be a negative trend downwards. It's that breaking up and grouping just to skew the stats and reverse the meaning of what you're actually doing. And it happens all the time. Departments and countries and breaking things up by you know gender or age group generally can skew results in this way. I, I think it's fascinating. And I love trying to look at how someone might have made a Simpsons paradox out of data by breaking up data sets. It's like a more sophisticated version of the graph mis- misrepresentation and the sampling, kind of combining those two things together and making something the opposite of what it actually is. And I think there's a lot in that around 
particularly for sort of academic publications, less so for mainstream media, but I would like to see it more, is around publishing the data. So being able to put your data out in the open allows people to see if you've done anything like that, but also allows people to check. And I think I've seen some really interesting stuff where people have had their work checked by multiple people and they found errors in it and they've been able to correct it really quickly and then everyone can course correct. A lot of the time it's just an error rather than any malfeasance but I think being able to do those sorts of things in the open a give people increased public trust in stuff because they can see it and touch it and they understand and they can walk through it but also I think it dissuades people around doing anything like that because they know there's an increased likelihood that they'll be found out if it is someone willfully manipulating it. Yeah, I think it's called confirmation bias, where you won't look for errors in your data if it shows you what you expect to see. When they're writing code as well. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you don't write your uh, tests for all your failing cases uh, or your edge cases if it just it looks like it does what you want. Good people like us, Andy, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll be honest, I did uh, exactly that yesterday. So (laughs) it looks like it works. When would there ever be two with these things running? Oh, there is two things running already. We we talked quite a lot about stats being um, misinterpreted and all the bad things about them, but some things are fun. Like I I like general stats and hearing that a certain percentage of something that I find unbelievable. And if the data is there to back it up, even better. On your point, Lauren, of having open data sets, especially in a sort of common data model or a format which can be consumed easily and comparing across other data sets, I like to have a play. I want to compare data with another data set. And I think that the the more open people are with that, we'll end up getting new insights into things that people didn't necessarily look at before because they're not striving to something and they're not funded by somebody to find something. It's more general curiosity and wanting to better what we're doing. There's also this fun side of statistics. Like, I, I must admit, I like Jimmy Carr. <laughs> a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine with eight out of 10 cats. Some of the stats that he comes up with and jokes, they're, they're fun. And actually, you could put that into schools. You could make it a little bit fun. I did say I don't think it's necessary to teach how to generate those things. When you said the, the teaching how to generate those things uh, in schools by looking at the colour of people's eyes in the classroom, I did think actually... That's a probably a very interesting way of teaching it. It makes it a bit more interesting rather than the dry format of let's have a look at these numbers that somebody's put out. Let's see what ways they could be skewed and what sort of things we're looking at. Going through the process of doing it yourself is, is, is a lot more interesting. Yeah. What sort of school age are we talking about? Because this should happen at primary school, really. I do remember you if you did an extra homework assignment at primary school, you got like a gold star. And the number of gold stars, the teacher tried to create a sort of bar chart out of it. They just knew that their bar was lower (laughs) if they didn't put the work in. And generally the kids that had a lower bar then didn't care about what the thing was anyway. I think that you can definitely make it more fun. I'm not a teacher and I don't have kids, so I'm not qualified to say how you could make it fun. But I think, yeah, stressing the importance of understanding these things. You've got a fake till when you're a kid. And you get taught how to add add up money and certain life skills like that. Kids these days don't even need that. (laughs) In fact, I'm not even sure some of them can add up. There are new skills for today's world, and I'm not really sure that the the curriculum currently supports a lot of that, like spotting fake news and looking at statistics and living in today's new technological society. 
yeah the amazing freedom of information that we have now availability of information rather than freedom of information it's you know it's all there it's all pushed into our faces we've got the opposite problem to what we had you know 30 40 years ago we've got too much information we don't know how to uh, interpret it we used to rely on professionals or journalists generally <laughs> to do that interpreting for us and now we sort of bypass that and get the source of these statistics rather than the people who interpret them. And the source often is bias. So we need to do that stuff that we used to get journalists to do for us. I think on that point around it being not necessarily factually useful, but having a purpose for people to engage in it. My favourite book is, is David Spiegelholz's around art of statistics, which is great. And it steps through different ways that you can understand different statistical biases and like common flaws. So it talks through like how you would find out who the luckiest person was on the Titanic from loads of different things. And it's just interesting. And the maths isn't that difficult and you don't need to read a difficult maths in it, but it steps through how you would go about doing those sorts of things with open source data and you can learn at your own pace. Going back to your point around bias, Andy, where people have have given people different bits of information, they've built it up to say, here's the information, or actually, to Lee's point, it was gathered over these kind of two different data sets, which were done quite differently. And here's the third thing, which is the funder of this piece of work is X, and they have, you know, it's a tobacco board or it's somebody, and you just, again, layer on the concepts around understanding how different people will lean their solution towards a a different problem and then being able to wrap all of that up together to have a sort of critical appraisal about whether or not you trust that information and what parts of it you're going to trust and what you're going to disregard I think is really important because lots of people don't necessarily declare who's paying for this which I think is a really important part around how much you feel like you could trust something. I think some basic things are missing at the moment. I mean, I joked at the beginning that I don't expect people to know, well, maybe I do expect people to know the difference between mean, median and mode. But if you show somebody a graph of income in the, in the UK, the number of people by population, so you can say how many people earn 30,000, how many people earn 40,000 and those kind of things. You show somebody a graph of that and then tell them that the the mean income in the UK is around 60,000, 70,000, which I think is about right. That hides the fact that 90% of people earn less than that. Different averages are very important in this kind of information. Yeah, I think when people say average, it just really annoys me because I'm like, which one? Come on, which one are we talking about here? So I think there is also something where it sometimes it's left deliberately vague for people to assume one of those three. And I don't think enough people kind of ask that question. If more people understood the differences between what it's telling you then I think more people would be asking when someone says, and the average X is that, then, yeah, I just think people would be saying, this is insufficient for me to be able to tell anything. Which of these three averages are you using? We just need to exclude those anomalies and outliers at a certain threshold to (laughs) to make sure they get the results you want. That's a a form of bias potentially though there as well, isn't it? When you, uh, (laughs) as soon as you start saying, oh, I don't like this number, I'm going to take it out of my data set. Yeah. And that is difficult because there is there's quite a lot of bias that comes in in that sort of data cleaning stage for that reason, where those outliers may not be errors. I've seen that assumed quite a few times and they've actually been really interesting things that warrant further investigation before they deserve to be turfed out. Data quality and data cleansing is a complex problem. That's probably three podcasts uh, in, its, in its own right, that one. 
one would be me crying by the way after the blockchain one <laughs> yeah maybe maybe we'll just tie them both together so you two can torture me with tales of data cleansing ways and how i make my fortune out of blockchain well i can show you on a pie chart exactly how many people that have bought into blockchain have lamborghinis and those that don't and those that haven't bought into it and in fact is that a venn diagram at that point maybe it is I don't know. I'll make it into a pie chart. The only way you can make it better is if it's 3D. Oh, I can do that with shading. Shading, it's back in. It's it's all the rage now. It just reminded me, you mentioned Venn diagrams. I actually stumbled across an article a few weeks ago about Venn diagrams being used as a, a way of convincing people of certain things by uh, basically drawing the circles in a way that suggests that the size is important. You can make the the less common thing a big circle and make it look like it without saying, without stating, and people will interpret that as it, you know, it must be more common. That's a really good point. Venn diagrams, how many Venn diagrams have you seen where they are physically proportionate based on the area and the intersections? It's a really hard thing to draw. And if you do draw it accurately, it probably looks terrible. <laughs> you probably can't label it right. That is why circles are so bad at representing statistics because it's really hard to judge proportionality and size because we're not good with circles. We just need to admit it. Yeah, the uh, double area is root two times the radius or something, isn't it? So it's like, yeah, 1.4 times or something like that. It really does look bad when you see things to scale in circles. It just confuses you completely. So what we need to teach people in school is that Venn diagrams are stupid. No one should ever do them. That's one thing that I remember learning in primary school, how to draw a Venn diagram. (laughs) It's fine to do a snidey Instagram comment or a meme with, but not to convey any statistical reality of life. It's fine for your opinions, go at it, but not to show any kind of thought through statistical thought processes. There was one bit you said before, Lauren, about the Titanic and working out how lucky people were. I'm not sure if this is a true story. I, I can't find it online. But when I was at school, ironically, I was told by my history teacher about a battle where whoever was uh, in charge of deciding who was going on the front line and, and who wasn't, made everybody flip a coin 10 times and the luckier people went on the front line at the front because they're more likely to live. I love that kind of mentality. If you tell somebody in school at the moment, they would probably believe it. Oh, hang on, I see what's happened here. (laughs) It might not be a true story. You just made that up. How how many times have you made that up? (laughs) I don't know. At least most of the times that it wasn't true. How's that you? 73% 73% of the time it wasn't true. I mean, I can't give you the raw data. but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, I think we've uh, covered all of the topics that we want to talk about on there. Has anyone got any uh, sort of closing words they'd like to, to say? I think from my perspective, it's about understanding not just about the basics of the stats and the mechanics and the sausage factory of actually producing the numbers. It's also about understanding the lens that those numbers were constructed in and also where that data has been collected from. There's a whole range of areas that can creep in through design, data collection, data cleansing, all the way through to to packaging it up. And there's lots of opportunities for people to influence and push their opinion through doing any one of those with a particular outcome or goal in mind. So I think it's about understanding that statistics can be bent, all the data can be collected to fulfil a certain purpose. 
And I think that is more aligned to critical thinking and scientific method than it is necessarily just to do with core maths. For me, I think if I was a teacher and thank God I'm not a teacher, <laughs> I'd want to see, you know, that students looking at that end-to-end process, understanding everything from data collection down to data manipulation, misinterpretation, and also finding fun things out for themselves. Because if they manage to collect some data and find something out that they are interested in, using some data that they've collected themselves in something they're also interested in, and tell their friends about it, that's a good way to help them then interpret and share that information in a way which is constructive and they've learned something and they'll spot some of the mistakes that maybe other people have made. I think it's a team sport. So much like rugby, where there's lots of different people with lots of different body sizes and shapes, I think with doing all these things, there's lots of different skills and attributes that kids can have and they should be good at least you know of one of those parts of it they might not enjoy all of it but I think showing that it's wider than just maths allows a wider group of people to feel like it's there's something in it for them or something that they can excel at. Having an appreciation of the end-to-end understanding how you know data is captured and how it's visualized at the other side I think that sort of pipeline that process you need to kind of understand a little bit about the other bits, even if it's a specialism that you're interested in and end up focusing on in the future. But having that sort of multidisciplinary understanding is quite important. I think no matter how much detail you need to learn, I think this year has proven with Chris Whitty getting up every uh, week and showing us uh, all these fascinating graphs and talking endlessly about them. Uh, I think we've all just realised that this year stats affect us all eventually. And when they are presented to you, it's important you need to recognise what truth you're being told. That's an important skill for everybody to have. If they've cropped all of the axes off the slides, like I love Chris Whitty, but those slides. That seems to be more about his PowerPoint presentation skills than his uh, statistical analysis skills. On the PowerPoint presentation (laughs) skills, I just want to end on a tiny little story. I actually worked with a delivery manager who didn't like the data that came out. And I'm sorry if you're listening to this. He didn't like the data that came out of, I think it was Jira, to show his burn up, burn down. Forget what it was now anyway. So he drew his own graph in PowerPoints, including the dots, including the lines. And I did often kind of think after a couple of weeks that they're not even really lined up properly. I mean, that line doesn't even really meet the center of that dot at all. In fact, that dot's a different size. I think we could probably do an entire session about why not to trust the statistics out of Jira. (laughs) So thank you, everyone, for listening. That's uh, our talk for this week. We'll we'll be doing another one next week, so be sure to follow us. There'll probably end up being another poll on Twitter, I imagine. Uh, uh, No, I'm being told no, there won't be. Apparently that didn't go well. I don't believe the graph. I don't believe the stats. You fixed it somehow. (laughs) I get to talk about my thing again. So yeah, feeling underscore techish is the uh, Twitter handle if you want to follow us on there. And there's also a link to the site with all the usual podcast links in there. And we'll see you all next week. Thanks, everyone. Thanks.